0: Please be seated. So I like maps, and um, I use. I, I just had a trip this last week. I went and visit our friends, Keith and Linda Axvig, and I, I landed in the airport, and I punched in their address, and, and you know then this this voice talks to me and tells me where to go. And but this is different, right? This is a map, okay? If it's upside down, you have to turn it right side up. It doesn't automatically orientate itself to. it. You know what I'm saying, right? So this actually was a trip that I took. It was a backcountry solo I did a bunch of years ago in the Canadian Rockies. And then this one, I love this one too because this one has some good memories. This one is actually north of Atacocan, northwest of, northeast of Atacocan, White Otter Lake, which is really cool. There's this old dude who built this cottage on the edge of White Otter Lake because he was told he was never going to be a to anything. At any rate, the cool thing about this map is that uh, there's this lake called Emery Lake. And Emery Lake was that place I've told some of you about about this where we had never fished lake trout before it was the fall of the year lake trout come up to spawn okay where is it I gotta find it here right here so we, we portaged into Emory, right, and there's these little group of islands, and we thought that fishing and lake trout meant you had to fish deep, which you usually do, but in the fall of the year, lake trout spawn, which we didn't know because we, what are, we're just guys from Aiken. We just go and fish it. It didn't matter to do research before you went to a lake. At any rate, so the lake trout spawn in the fall, and so they're in shallow, right? And so we're like, we end up, my, my brother Paul flips out this MEPS, the number four MEPS, Bam, a lake trout hits it. We're like, whoa, what just happened there, you know? And so that we ended up getting like all these lake trout, right? And we made this little live well. I've told you this story before, haven't I? You've heard this, right? And anyway, any rate, we make this little live well out of rocks, you know? Because my dad was a, he grew up doing in the Depression, okay? He was a meat eater. He was a meat hunter. He, he ate what he caught. He caught what he ate. You know, that kind of deal, right? And so we had like 40 lake trout, okay? There's six of us. Bag limit is three per. Dad's like, well, we'll just keep the big ones, right? So we'd like take one out, you know, and dad'd be like, no, 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 no we can't throw that one away. No. So we end up going back with 40 lake trout. But you can't leave Canada with 40 lake trout because they have a bad sense of humor about that. This was a bunch of years ago. I think Statue of Limitations has a... occurred. Do, do you ever think that if you're, like you're from Greenland, like Greenland's in the middle of the map, or say like you're from Africa, like, like, like Africa would be in the middle of the map? I wonder that. How about if you're Singapore? If you're from the island nation of Singapore, you know, it's way down here. Would that like be in the middle of the map? At any rate, maps are kind of cool, right? Okay, and we have this large map of the world. And there's boundaries, right? There's boundaries here that say this is the United States. And there's this line that says this is Mexico. And then over here we have, well, this is an old map, right? Because we have Arabia. Now it's Saudi Arabia, right? We have Persia. There's no Iraq, no Iran. We have, we have Afghanistan. We have, I don't even know the name of this one. Balochistan? I've never heard of that. At any rate, so you have this like maps and, and zones and boundaries and mountain ranges and rivers, and, and we claim things, right? We claim things, right? We say this is the United States of America, and 622 something is where I live. We claim these things, right? They're ours, it's what we own. Page 595, verse 1, Isaiah chapter 35. We'll get maps back to maps in a little bit. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. This is a happy Earth Day. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Last week, because 34 and 35, okay, Oswald argues should be read together, and so it's part one, part two. La- last week, we saw how basically humans who are not following God have basically left the world in a really, really bad place, like utter destruction, and the critters have come back. And what is being described in this physical redemption in poetic form, the, the landscape the landscape is exploding in color and flowers. Think how in just a few months, those of us who garden and all of us who enjoy a good garden will again see the yearly journey of redemption. But please, when we look at nature, observe it for its beauty without question. But, but integrate it in terms of what it tells us about God integrate it into our lives, into what it reveals to us about God. We have this yearly journey of redemption that for those who are paying attention, it, it is a simple, it's a small slice of what someday will be. Allow yourself, allow ourselves to be reminded of how nature testifies to God, about God. Never miss the wonder of creation Isaiah is arguing for it. It is a happy Earth Day. The Earth is rejoicing. The power of God to take dry desert and transform into verdant glory. It's a metaphor. Not for just simply what will happen, but for the power of God to take and redeem. Think about all you have to do to make a, a desert a lush place, okay? Okay? I mean, you not just have to change the climate. You have to add water. You have to add soil. You have to add nutrition, nutrients to the earth. And all of these obstacles are nothing. This metaphor helps us understand how God works and what God is capable of doing. Verses 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make the firm and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Vengeance, a word we understand. Recompense, we introduced it last week. We didn't define it. Recompense is just making whole, okay? So like if, if, if I, uh, say you're in a spot where you're in a bad spot and you've been defrauded or perhaps you've been cheated. Uh, it's a business deal that went bad. And, and so if I was to give you recompense, Okay, even though I don't owe you money, say that you lost a hundred bucks on a deal, and I said, you know something, rather than worry about the hundred bucks that you lost, here's a hundred bucks, I've made you whole, just let it be good. Okay, that's what recompense is it's making a person whole after they've been defrauded. It's not something that I have to do, right? It's something that I choose to do. Now, the person who owes you the money, well, you know, they're guilty of thievery or something like that, but but the recompense of God. It's not something that God has to do, but it's the promise of God to make whole. And we have this picture of the disenfranchised. Now, in these first few verses, we have two distinct subjects, both of which were thought as less than those who couldn't walk in arid land. Worthless? Isaiah's like, not so fast to the lame, to, to the parched, to the bad hearts, to those who have been freaked out, to those who are afraid, to those who have been oppressed, those who have been kept from their rightful place. That's all done. God is coming with vengeance against the oppressors. And the recompense of God, God making it right, will happen. Now, again, please don't attempt to draw some political ideology about what I'm saying. Don't take a side on a political party. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. And when we look at the world around us, and if we see the disenfranchised, you need to know God cares about the disenfranchised. You need to know that God cares about the lame and the parched and the folks with bad hearts. Some of us are like, yes. God cares about those who are afraid. And the role of God is to come with a vengeance in these verses against the oppressors, that God will make it right. Like I said, earlier this week I landed in the south of Texas to visit our friends Keith and Linda, and some of you have seen the coffee table book of pictures of the things that Keith and Linda do. And, and for those of you that don't know Keith and Linda, their story is so amazingly compelling, right? Because they do like a lot of people do. They retire, and then in the wintertime they, they go south, okay, and, and they enjoy, you enjoy warm weather and golf. And they're like, hey, we wanted to play golf twice a day, and then something happened. They took a trip across the border and went into Mexico and viewed some of the poorest of the poor and and now during the winter months they make 70 to 80 trips into Mexico and there's this elegant simplicity to what they do they they, they feed people and they clothe people and they build shelters for people and they build churches and they carry for the la- care for the lame. And they care for those with medical conditions that don't have a solution. And they care for the hungry. And they care for moms with four kids whose husbands have left. They care for the disenfranchised. It is absolutely beautiful. And you can't not help but have your life profoundly affected when you observe what they do. They see the image of God in the faces of those they call friends. And for the past 16 years, they've done this. Because these folks, all folks, matter to God. Now some... We might be tempted to think, well, if God's going to make it right in the end, right, do we have to be concerned about right now? And this applies to all sorts of layers, right? This applies to how we treat nature, how we treat the environment. It it applies to how we treat our our friends, our families. I mean, if God's going to make it right in the end, what difference does it make how I act now? And I think that's a legitimate question to ask, okay? But think about it this way, okay? You live in a home, right? Most of you live in a home, right? Don't think there's many people who are tent dwellers here this morning. But even if you live in a tent, okay? You know, you live in this place, right? And, and ultimately, someday, you will no longer live there. But for the most part, we maintain the dwellings that we live in. We still pay the bills necessary to live there. We do what needs to be done so that the structure, albeit a temporary structure for our temporary lives, is a place where we can call home, a place where we can live. And even though there's a future someplace else, a good future for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, and while that future is secure for those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we live in the present. And so, yeah, we should care. We should care about the world around us. We should care about the physical world around us. We should care about the people who live in the world around us. We should care about those, whether they be in Mexico or whether they be in our own backyard. Because it matters to God. And if the environment matters to God, and if humanity matters to God, and if how we act matters to God then why wouldn't we behave in a way that's consistent? That's consistent with God's best for what he has created. And that's the linchpin, right? We started talking about it last week. Is the lives that we live, are they a right that we possess or are they a gift that have been given to us? If they're a right, if it's my right, then I can choose what I do. But if it's a gift, we have this notion in verse 4 of God saving, of God wanting to be in the business of salvation. Last week, we challenged our thoughts. Don't, don't shy away from the tough passages in the but the thing that describe the judgment of God, don't shy away from those. But the thing that God is in the business of more than anything else is salvation. He will judge, but, but, but salvation is what drives the bus. And we have this picture in verse 4. He will come and save you. Assuming, of course, you'll allow yourself to take advantage of that salvation. Verse 5, is a change. Then, future tense. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. It's the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No line shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sign shall flee away. (laughs) Streams in a desert. This is a metaphor that Isaiah will use in this second half of the book of Isaiah. And we have this metaphor of walking a pathway of holiness. And if it didn't grab your attention, flip back to it and look at it because it's capitalized, right? There's some important there, right? the way of holiness. And what does it mean to walk in this way? I just about did. What does it mean to walk this way? But I figured if I did that on Sunday morning, I would lose everyone. I shouldn't do that. I won't do that. I promise that I wouldn't. Is this just a future thing? Is is walking in the way of holiness, is that just a future thing? Or is this something that we can practice today? And again, we come back to this idea of, of right versus gift. Can we get ready for the future by behaving a certain way today? Do we look at our lives as a right or as a gift? How do we walk? How do we respond to the world around us? Is it something that is ours or is it a gift from someone else? Do we possess it or are we a caretaker of it? And I'm going to probably push you here, right? Because we think of our land as our land. I have a deed. It's my land. We think about our businesses as our businesses. I built this business, okay? My, my dad could have easily said, I built this business from bankruptcy, okay? The previous owners ran it into the ground. He'd be 100% correct. He built his business. We can say, our family, this is my family. This is my church. And I want to push you because these are not things that you or I own. These are things for which we might be the chief caretaker, but a caretaker nonetheless. And someday the Father will ask, what did you do? with all that I placed in your sphere of influence. Someday you'll stand before a holy God. I'll stand before a holy God. And and God will say, okay, hey, you know something? I gave you the opportunity. You had no right to it whatsoever to marry this person. Her name was Tanya. Her name is Tanya. What'd you do? Was it a right? Is it something that you possessed? Or did you acknowledge that the woman that I brought into your life was a gift from me? And did you treat her like a gift? Full stop. No qualifications. Did you treat her like a gift? And the kids that through the wonder of biology you were gifted with, what did you do with those gifts? And the relationships that you had and the place that you looked, worked rather, and the the things that you owned, what did you do with those things? Did you treat them as a gift or did you treat them as something that you possessed? I think the pathway of holiness is both belief, okay, but it's also behavior. I think believing the right things is incredibly important, but believing the right things without behavior makes me question whether or not we would really believe them. And so I think behavior on the way of holiness is incredibly important. It does get to the essence of it. How do we walk on a daily basis? Do we take each step cognizant of the fact that it is a gift from God? Or do we say, this is my world, and I possess it. I don't want that future day to be awkward for any of us. I don't want that future day when the Father will ask, what did you do with that that I placed in your sphere of influence? The text talks about redeemed It's an intriguing word, right? Because it doesn't occur much in the first part of Isaiah, only twice. But in the last half of Isaiah, it occurs over 20 times. And and it really gets at this notion of what God wants to do. The judgment is over, redemption is at hand. What are the implications? What does it mean to be redeemed? And again, is it a right or is it a gift? All that is to say, in describing the future, Isaiah is making a passionate case for God. Making a passionate case for the future with God. And to be sure, not everyone will be convinced. But for those who have the ability to understand... For those who can come face to face with the boundaries and the borders, the names on the map that we say are ours. No, no they're not. They're God's. Can we view all of life as a gift from the Father? And can we behave in such a way understanding and experiencing God's salvation and being part of this compelling picture of some super happy earth days. Please pray with me. In the quietness of the moment, do business with God. I mean, just think about the things that he's brought into your life. Just think about the things that you possess about your family, about your business, about your home. Do we treat these things as a gift? Do we understand that they are from God? And to put a very fine point on it, even our own lives, do we treat our lives as a gift from God? Have we experienced His salvation? I invite you to do business with the God of the universe in his Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.